creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University. It's time to release your inner geek. Today on Culture Click, we take you to Nerd Night at Ed's No Name Bar in Winona. The topic? What the hell is going on here? Dante in a time of political division. Andrew Hegel, professor of English at Winona State University, takes us on a stroll through Dante's Inferno from the Divine Comedy. Professor Hegel leaves it up to the listener to interpret Dante's Inferno as it might relate to today's time and famous figures. He does, however, fill us in on the importance of the types of sins for each level of hell. We also discuss how the Divine Comedy can be interpreted throughout different periods in history. I'm Bill Stoneberg with Professor Andrew Hegel on Culture Click. All right. So I'll start off by saying uh, Dante turned 754 this month. So happy birthday, Dante. Uh, They don't actually know what his birthday is, but uh, it was right about now in May. Um, So I want to start off by by saying a couple of things here. I'm not going to do a couple of things. Number one, I'm not going to assign any present-day political or cultural figures to circles of hell. But I will leave that to you. You can do that in the Q&A. All right. Um, I'm not going to discuss the merits of one ethical, moral, or religious belief system over another. Let's all get along, okay? Here we go. This is what I am going to do. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about Dante's own time of political division in Florence, Italy, uh, and a bit about the conflicts over his body after his death, if I have some time for that. I'm going to explore some of the more remarkable punishments of the Inferno. That's the fun stuff. Uh, along with a brief overview of the whole Divine Comedy or the Commedia as a whole. And I'm also going to make a case for reading the Divine Comedy uh, for catharsis and consolation in our own time. So I want to start off with the beginning. Nel mezzo del camin di nostra vita mi trovia per una selva oscura che la dritta dritta via era smerita. So what that basically means is, this is the first lines of the Inferno, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood for the straight way was lost. A couple of things stands out here. Number one, so this is the first of three books. He doesn't just stop in hell and that's the end of it. He actually goes on to purgatory. Few people read purgatory or paradise. Most people read the Inferno and then give up there. Uh, Why? I don't know. Uh, It's more exciting. It's more interesting. But he is going somewhere. But he's lost at this point when he begins the work. Why is he lost? That's an interesting question. A lot of that has to do with what's going on in Florence at the end of the 13th century. What's going on in his world? So Dante was born in about 1265. In 1265 in Florence, there is lots of building and uh, development going on. This is a really big time for Florence, but it's also a time of extremely, uh, extreme turbulence and upheaval. Uh, things are very unstable. He wants to go up this hill. He wants to ascend this hill. He wants to get out of the wilderness, but three wild beasts block his way, uh, sometimes translated a lion, uh, a leopard, and a she-wolf. Um, they block his way. So a guy comes along, guy comes along named Virgil says, okay, I got the way, you got to follow me, but the way is going to go through hell. You have to go through hell, you have to go down all the way to the bottom of hell, to Satan himself, a three-headed or at least three-faced being chewing on Brutus, Cassius, uh, and Judas, the three great traitors at the bottom of hell. You have to go down to him, and then once you get down to him, then you can start climbing up. 
So this isn't the way, this is the way. So why is he taking this way? Why is this the journey? What is Dante doing with this? So this is Florence at about 1300. What's happening in Florence in about 1300? If you've ever been to Florence or if you've ever wanted to go to Florence and you get like that Rick Steves book or whatever the heck you get for your guidebook or go on the internet and say, where should I go in Florence? These are the places you're going to end up going. All of them were constructed when Dante was coming of age. All of them were being built right about the beginning of the 13th century, or right about the middle to the end of the 13th century. This is a pretty amazing time for this place. Dante himself is an active participant in the place at this time. But, but, there's lots of political infighting. There are two parties vying for power in Tuscany, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. What are these parties? Well, basically, the Guelphs are uh, a group of people who uh, support the papacy and the Ghibellines were the ones who supported the Holy Roman Emperor, um, both vying for more political control. Unlike Italy of today, which is a sovereign nation state, at the time, Italy was made up of lots of different little nation states. So Florence itself was a sovereign state, but they still had a turn to their big brothers, the papacy, or the Holy Roman Emperor for protection and control. So the Guelphs favored one, the Ghibellines favored other, the other, and they fought constantly for control in Tuscany. Constantly. Five years before Dante's birth in 1260, where there was the major battle called the Battle of Monteperte, which was supposed to end be the war to end all wars for, between these two factions in northern Italy. The Ghibellines destroyed the Guelphs. But several years later, the Guelphs reemerged. They reformed, and then they continued to battle. They continued to battle for, for the next few decades. By 1289, though, when Dante was 24 years old, he participated in the battle that would essentially wipe the Ghibellines off the map. Yay, political unity, uh, whatever. Uh, but the point is, at this very moment, at this very moment, the Guelphs decided, hey, I don't get along with you anymore. So they then... This unified one party then split into two parties, the Black Guelphs and the White Guelphs. Now, uh, Dante actually uh, moves into the public sphere, not as a poet, but first as a political actor. He uh, joins a guild in 1295. Unlike other places in Europe, the way to actually exercise power in Florence wasn't to uh, be born of a noble family. It was actually to participate in a guild. So he joined the guild of the apothecaries in 1295. And that was his ticket into public office. So that by 1300, he was a, one of the six leaders of the city. He was one of the rulers of the city. But here's the catch. He wasn't elected. They drew names out of a bag. One from each guild. And he only got two months. That's how much they distrusted everyone in the city. They would only give everybody two months, and they had a rule on a committee of six. Because if you got more than two months, more than two months, there was a good chance you would start um, seizing more power. People would die. Things would happen. And all of a sudden, there would be a totalitarian regime. So you get two months to do it. They favored the radical instability and upheaval of changing your government every two months over the possibility of somebody becoming a tyrannical ruler. So Dante got to do it for two months from about June to August 1300. However, in 1302, 
the factions of the black Guelphs and the white Guelphs started a battle with each other. And the white Guelphs were in control of the city. By the way, Dante's a white Guelph. Um, and uh, the black Guelphs wanted to seize control. Boniface VIII is pope at this time. What does Boniface VIII have to do with this? Well, Boniface VIII uh, was a really a bad dude, uh, and I'll talk about him here in a second. Um, Boniface VIII was a really a bad dude. Uh, you probably heard when the last pope resigned recently that he was the last pope to resign since the 13th century. Well, Boniface was the pope after the pope resigned. And why do you think the pope resigned? Probably because Boniface threatened to kill him. Um, so the story goes um, that Celestine uh, was the previous pope, Celestine V. Uh, he was a monk. He just wanted to be a monk. And he was elected pope reluctantly. Boniface is like, I'd like to be pope. Why don't you get out of the way? Um, so he basically, Celestine fled Rome, tried to flee into the woods. Boniface hunted him down and imprisoned him just in case he decided to come back again. And 10 months later, Celestine died. How he died? Nobody knows. Boniface probably had something to do with it. Anyhow, Boniface really, really wanted a crusade. He was really jonesing for one. So what he did was uh, he was trying to enlist the support of all the different nation states of Italy. He, uh, he, he enlists uh, Florence. But the white Guelphs don't go along with it. The black Guelphs do. So what does he have to do? He has to annihilate the white Guelphs. Dante is part of a, a diplomatic mission that gets sent down to Rome. They get sent down to Rome to basically talk Boniface down from this. Meanwhile, uh, Boniface colludes with Charles of Valois of France to come into Florence while this diplomatic mission is happening. While the diplomatic mission is happening, Boniface keeps sort of saying, I'll meet with you tomorrow, I'll meet with you tomorrow. While that's happening, Charles of Valois wipes out the white Guelphs, the black Guelphs seize control of the city, and they banish Dante for life from Florence. They banish Dante for life from Florence. He can never go back again. Until the very end of his life, though, he always signed letters, Dante, Alighieri, Florentine. He was so uh, patriotic about his city and his town that he never wanted to uh, abandon his identity as a Florentine. When he gets to heaven in the, in the Divine Comedy, there's actually a moment when he's in heaven, he actually looks down on Florence and says, man, I wish I could be there. And he's in heaven. That's how disappointed and uh, how much this sort of moved him to sort of feel alienated from his place. He hated Boniface so much for the way that he double-crossed him and stabbed him in the back that Boniface is the only living figure who's already predicted in the Inferno. And I'll get to that later. Dante never got back to, to Florence. Uh, he was buried in Ravenna. He wandered around Italy for the rest of his life, uh, eventually ends up in Ravenna, is buried there. Almost immediately after his death, though, the Florentines were like, whoops, we screwed up. Uh, can we have him back now? Uh, we'll make a nice tomb for him here. And the Ravenna, Ravenna recognized the tourism possibilities of this and have basically refused for the last 700 years. Um, they actually hid his body so well that they lost it for 500 years. Um, and then miraculously found it. I don't know. Whatever. So what? 
This is a quote from Dino Compagnier, who is uh, his contemporary, Dante's contemporary. This is what he says about the discord and the division that are happening in Florence at the time, at this time. He says, arise, wicked citizens full of discord, grab sword and torch with your own hands and spread your wicked deeds. Do not delay, wretches. More is consumed in one day of war than is gained in many years of peace, and a small spark can destroy a great realm. He's being ironic. He's not actually saying they should do that. But he's pointing out that this is the way Florence works. They're constantly just fighting with each other. So what does Dante do? He roams around Florence, or excuse me, he roams around Italy, trying to find the answers to these questions by creating a systematic order for the chaos that he sees. And he does that by creating hell, which is not chaotic. It's very systematic. So these are the gates of hell. Here it is. This is the map of hell. It is extremely systematic the way that hell is organized. It's canonical. It's funnel-shaped. You move your way down to the bottom. There's different sins as you move your way down. So here we go. We're going to work our way down. Uh, start in limbo. Things are kind of just, you know, whatever in limbo. Nobody's really doing anything. Nothing's really happening. Um, no real punishments happen here. But you're not, you know, you can't move up to the next level, but you can't go anywhere else, so you're kind of just stuck there. You move down the list. It's lustful gluttonous, greedy, wrathful, heretics, violence. Things actually, though, and I'm not going to skip over those in the interest of time, because if we went through the whole thing, you'd, poof, it'd be exhausting. Um, but I want to go to fraudulence and treachery. And the reason why I want to go to fraudulence and treachery is because, number one, they're at the bottom of hell. And number two, they are the most well-developed. Um, at the very pit of hell is actually Satan. I mentioned before, munching on these three figures. Um, fraud and treason are at the bottom. Fraud is divided into ten pouches, called malbolge. I like pouches of punishment as a phrase. Um, so here we go. We're going to go through each pouch. So this is when you can play your Mad Libs game, and you can like fill in the blank of who you'd like to assign to this place. So pay attention here. Seducers, panderers, and, but let's really call it how it is. These are the rapists. They are whipped by devils. They knowingly and willingly use sexuality and other human passions to rob others of dignity and worth, and now their dignity and worth is denied. Next pouch, moving on. Flatterers, because flattery does get you somewhere. Uh, specifically, a pile of They were so full of it in life, and now they are deepening in death. Simonists, and this is where Boniface is expected. These people use their church office for personal gain. They're stuck in holes upside down with the soles of their feet burning with flames. And I'll explain what that means. Um, they're in inverted baptismal fonts, essentially, but I'll get to that in a second. Soothsayers have their heads turned backwards. They can't see what's in front of them because they bullshit about what's ahead of them all throughout their life. Grafters. Oh, boy. These people seek personal gain at the expense of others and their own responsibility. Again, not going to name names. They're immersed in boiling pitch. They had sticky fingers in life. Now they have sticky everything in death. So I mentioned the Simonists, and this is where Boniface is expected. Nicholas III, his, the previous pope, is actually there upside down. And Dante and Virgil, his guide, his classical poet guide, show up there. And uh, Nicholas is like, hey, Boniface, you're finally here. Um, 
And Dante's like, no, 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 I'm not here yet. The funny thing is that the poem is set in 1300, so this is supposed to be funny because he's, he's still alive at this point. Um, what's interesting about this punishment is that it represents something of what's called contrapasso. These particular figures who are upside down are actually in an inverted version of a baptismal font. This is the baptismal font in Pisa. What would happen is the, um, the priest would stand in here and baptize people in the center. What they, and, and what they have essentially done if, is they've perverted and inverted their job. They've used it for personal gain, and so they are upside down in it. And rather than receiving the Holy Spirit on their head, as it's described in the Acts of the Apostles, they are receiving fire on their feet. Let's move on to some more sins. Uh, hypocrites, do as I say, not as I do. They wear heavy leaden robes. They couldn't be bothered with the weight of responsibility. Thieves, this is a great one. They have their hands tied behind their backs, and they, they change shape into uh, lizards, essentially. Um, they took from others, and so now their very identity is taken from them. So the next, uh, the next one is deceivers who gave false or corrupted advice to others for personal benefits. Uh, they are on fire, and this is the liar, liar, everything on fire pit. Sowers of discord. I like this one too. People who divided in life are sliced open in death. Falsifiers, forgers, alchemists, and all those who try to pass off fake things as real are tormented by an array of nasty skin diseases. What fraud and disease they concealed in life is manifest on their bodies now. So the governing principle of the punishments in hell are, is something called contrapasso which basically means suffer the opposite. So basically these people are suffering a surfeit or an excess of the vice. And then there's a correction to counterbalance or there's also maybe a correction to counterbalance the vice. Uh, and then you also have a materialization of the metaphor of the vice. The other thing that's important for Dante's hell is this notion of common profit. The reason why fraud and treason are worse than gluttony, lust, greed, and violence is because they infect the whole body politic. They infect the entire community. The entire community. For him, that's what's important. Remember, he doesn't say midway upon the journey of my life. He says midway upon the journey of our life at the very beginning of the poem. I want to talk about one guy at the bottom, and then I'll wrap it up. Uh, this is Ugolino of Pisa. He's a biter. Um, here's what he did. He was a traitor to party and to family. Number one, he started off life as a Ghibelline, that one party. He recognized the tides were turning for the Ghibellines, so he switched sides to the Guelphs. He then proceeded to sell off all the lands of Pisa, and uh, once it seemed like tides were turning back to the Ghibellines, tried to switch back to the Ghibellines, and tried to actually end up betraying his grandson and his sons. He was imprisoned in a tower with his sons, and the wall was closed up, and the story goes uh, is that he ate his sons because he had nothing else to eat. In hell, he's perpetually uh, chewing on the back of the head of the guy who ended up betraying him anyways, Archbishop Ruggieri of Pisa. So when we get to the bottom, we get these, these, this betrayal, and betrayal is figured not just in the case of Ugolino, but also of Satan as this disease of consumption, this idea that it's a consuming disease. It's a, it's a bodily disease in a way that may, perhaps we don't think of it today. 
So uh, thinking about eating and treachery, I think, is, a, is the, what I want to take away from that to wrap it up. So this is the last thing. Here's what it does for us. What is the inferno for Dante and for us? It's a systematic ordering of what must seem like chaos and upheaval in his world. Though framed as a vision, this is Dante basically dealing with and ordering uh, his system of values within his society. It's an imaginative act of catharsis and consolation. It feels good to see people get their comeuppance. It also feels good to be able to pass through hell as something transitory rather than static. Because when Dante begins to climb over Satan, he actually starts to go, he's going down, and all of a sudden he turns around and is starting to go up again. And he's the only one who gets to do that. So in terms of his own personal journey, this is really important. He has to go all the way to the bottom. He has to hit rock bottom before he can go back up again. Because it's at the very bottom, at the pit of hell, that he can begin to ascend up again. And I'll stop there. All right, thank you very much. Let's have a round of applause. I'm here with Andrew Hagel. He just did a uh, nerd night talk down at Ed's. And uh, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Great, great. It was, it was a great talk. Um, and you're a professor of, at English here at Winona State University. And uh, your topic tonight was Dante and the uh, Divine Comedy. Yeah, yeah, the Divine Comedy. Yeah, I was talking mostly about the Inferno, which is the hell part. So. Right, right. The fun part, right? Yeah, mostly, mostly the fun part, yeah. Um, I, you know, I was kind of curious, uh, how can reading the Divine Comedy kind of, can it, can it make sense in our time too, or, or do you have to read it from the perspective of, you know, back then? Yeah, so Dante was writing that to deal with the problems he was facing in his own life, at his own time, in his own community, and um, if you read it that way, I mean, you're going to be spending a lot of time just going on Wikipedia, basically, and trying to figure out who all these people are. Uh, and and that, that has its merits, but on the other hand, you also, when you get the basic idea of the things that he's trying to deal with, the, the crimes, the sins, the, uh, the bad deeds that, has, uh, that have made him so upset, uh, then that kind of stuff is timeless in a lot of ways. Because, you know, we see people today and we're frustrated because they get away with this particular thing and it causes these problems in the community and things like that. Um, what he was essentially doing was trying to deal with that and create a kind of system to deal with that and to reconcile his own kind of... Uh, well, I mean, he got kicked out of his, his, uh, his hometown. It was almost like being exiled from his home country and was never allowed to return again. And in the, in the midst of that, decided that it was time to, 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 to make sense of that in the disorder that he was living in. So I, I think anytime you're dealing with disorder... It makes sense to read the Divine Comedy. So, okay, okay. So, do you think that like throughout time, as people read it in different time periods, is it does it kind of a work like that kind of take on a life of its own, be, like far beyond the intention? Or yeah, and it has historically too. In fact, I mean, Dante gets used at lots of different moments historically in the past uh, to sort of hey, now all of a sudden this guy really speaks to this moment. Uh, when Italy was unified in 1865, they, they brought out Dante. Uh, when, uh, you know, and, and you, there was a guy who wrote a book a few years ago who, who talked about, uh, who, who, who wrote about uh, reading Dante in terms of spiritual crisis and things like that. So it, it, it's, um, it's really plastic or malleable or it can bend and shape into different moments and different times for different readers. 
and for different crises that people are facing, uh, political, personal, uh, all sorts of different things. Okay. Um, do you think that we can, uh, you know, like a lot of the figures you were saying were uh, uh, political figures or famous people, do you think that there's, you know, that we could take our, our own political figures and famous people and put them in these roles or...? Yeah, I avoided doing that in the talk, uh, and I, very, I did it very deliberately because that feels kind of too heavy-handed, you know? It feels really heavy-handed to all of a sudden imagine one particular political figure in the, in, the, in the circle of grafters or something like that. I just feel as though it's, it's more uh, interesting to deal with the action rather than the person, right? Uh, and, and that's what he's basically dealing with there. I mean, the people are, the people are people either from history or people he knew. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I try not to think of particular people because I feel like a it's not my place, and and b it's more interesting thinking about the action rather than the person necessarily. Yeah. You think it's okay for the individual reader to kind of insert their own, you know, stuff from their mind or? You can do whatever you want. I mean, you know, you can read it however you want. And I think that is a lot, a, a lot of ways. I mean, I've taught this before, and inevitably, somebody will will see somebody who's contemporary in a circle and, and just blurt it out in class and say, "Hey, that's so and so." And I'm like, "Yeah, all right, fine." Um, but the thing is about we'll call them sins, but just misdeeds. Uh, they repeat themselves over and over and over again. And so the things that seem like the worst of the worst today, I think there's a, there is a little bit of a comfort in knowing that these things, other people have dealt with these things in the past, right? And society has dealt with them, and we've come out on the other side, and we keep going, right? So, um, so there's a certain degree I, I don't necessarily like pigeonholing one particular person in those places. I like that idea of them being about the action rather than the person. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I try not to let anybody in my mind stay too long if I picture them in a particular circle. Huh? So, and I, I, I try to avoid that altogether. Though. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, so it's it's more about the misdeeds themselves and then the, the punishment and how that works. And... Uh, uh, what I found interesting was that violence itself wasn't on the bottom. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, I mean, violence itself is uh, more visceral and uh, animalistic and also more individual. So in other words, if a person commits violence against another person, that's one thing. But if a person commits violence and that violence then has ramifications for the whole society, then and then there's there's premeditation to it and it, it has consequences. In other words, if the act of violence has consequences for more than just the individuals involved in the act of violence, then then there are more victims and there are, there are, there is more problems that come from the from the act. So so Dante places fraud and and treason as the two worst crimes, the two worst sins, because they have the most far-reaching consequences. Oftentimes, fraud and, fraud and treachery do involve violence, but they're more than just violence. There's premeditation. There are uh, whole communities that are either obliterated or affected 
Um, so violence itself, um, if it's an act of emotion, if it's an act that only has uh, a small group that's involved in it, those are less significant to him than the ones that have far-reaching consequences. Yeah, I mean, it's really odd that flatterers are worse than murderers for Dante. But for, for Dante, flatterers can cause more harm in the big picture and long term than a single act of murder, which sounds really callous and awful, because obviously nowadays we really value the individual human life. And that's something that's very different for Dante. Dante sees the individual human life as less significant than the stability and order of the whole society. Okay, so really it's, it's about uh, the heavier the consequences, the heavier the punishment, the, the more far-reaching, right? right? Yeah, the more far-reaching in terms of the number of people, the group, the society, the community, yeah. Okay. Um, how did you, uh, and, and you're a professor of English, so it makes sense, but how did you kind of uh, settle on, on Dante for tonight's talk? Um, well, I, I, uh, I take students to, to Italy uh, every couple of years uh, and teach Dante. I, I, I got interested in Dante um, years and years ago when I was much even younger. Uh, I was taking a Latin class, and uh, I was studying Virgil, and uh, I was in high school. And uh, I got to write a final paper on Dante, and that really kind of planted a seed that I didn't even really get to explore until years and years later. I... I I work on mostly English literature, and he's Italian, and so, um, you know, that's one of the things that happens as you sort of evolve as a scholar and a professor, is you take on new interests, and Dante sort of emerged as an interest about eight years ago, ten years ago, as something that I really kind of took on as a more of a focal point in my research, so, and, and, and I've kind of... I'm writing, I'm trying to write a, I'm finishing a, finishing writing a book about Dante's afterlife in Florence and how he's, he was kicked out of his hometown and yet they've sort of embraced him. He was only pardoned in 2008, for instance, uh, which just seems really late. Uh, so I was really interested in that complicated afterlife of Dante and Florence. So interesting. So we can expect a book maybe in the in the future, huh? I don't I, don't hold me to that, but it's 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 slowly moving. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Great. Great. Well, I've been talking to Andrew Higgel here at uh, at Snow Name Bar. He's a professor of English at Winona State University, and uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Professor Andrew Higgel for joining us today on Culture Click. To find out more about Nerd Night in Winona, keep an eye on the Ed's No Name Bar Facebook page. To keep up on all things Winona and the surrounding area, tune in to Culture Click Thursdays at 12.30 right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Bill Stoneberg, and we've just heard from Professor Andrew Higgel on Culture Click. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQALFM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Are you interested in all things Winona and the surrounding area? Find podcasts of Culture Click and all your favorite KQAL shows by going to kqal.org and looking for program archives under the Media tab. Culture Click is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.